0: Good morning. As I mentioned in my weekly email, the last several chapters of Acts are all a narrative description of the events that occurred to get Paul from Jerusalem to Rome. And there's relatively few things new from either a theological or application perspective that we haven't seen and discussed in the early chapters already. And so we'll be finishing Acts this morning with our specific passage being Acts chapter 28, verses 28 to 31. But I'll be making reference to several of the events that take place in the chapters right before that. So let's stand as we read Acts chapter 28, verses 28 through 31. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book of Acts that we have enjoyed from the beginning. See how through your spirit you took the gospel throughout the world. And here as we... Close it out with Paul as he was welcoming people who came to him and living, proclaiming, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for his example. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we began Acts with Jesus' post resurrection visit with the disciples, preparing them for their life's mission. And we saw how the theme for the entire book of Acts was established back in chapter one, where we read, When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the rest of the book of Acts has been showing us how those words were fulfilled as the gospel went out to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the end of the earth. But then things seem to come to an abrupt halt in chapters 21 and 22, just as the churches were established and facing some internal struggles, Paul was taken captive. And so the question was, did the mission fail there? You may remember from last week that God doesn't react to our decisions and constantly come up with plan B. In fact, we can be confident that the fact that Paul went to Jerusalem and was taken captive was not only allowed by God, but decreed and made a part of his plan A that was put into place long before Paul was ever born. And sometimes the joy of the Christian life is to work to discover how the things that we thought were terrible or mission-ending or senseless are actually used by God for His glory and for His purposes. So let's try and do that with Paul. Let's look at these final chapters of Acts, and we'll return to our morning's passage words later. We first need to see a few things, like I said that happened on his journey to Rome. One of the key things that God apparently had in mind for Paul being taken captive was the opportunity to, to engage several important audiences. And, and we, likewise, will learn some important lessons from how Paul handled each of those opportunities. His first audience, really, was the group that had taken him captive in the first place. And I'm impressed how According to Acts 21, 39, Paul's one request to the Roman commander was to be able to speak to the people who had been trying to kill him. And so standing in chains before a hostile crowd, Paul was able to give a lengthy explanation of his life testimony. The question is, is that what we would do? Is that what you would do in his situation? If you try to imagine what the experience was like, have you ever stood before a hostile group of people that wanted to harm you. I've had people angry with me before, but I'd have to go all the way back to when I was young to remember a time where people wanted to hurt me. When I was eight years old, I had a friend who lived several blocks away in our neighborhood and I would ride my bicycle on occasion to his house. But to get there, I had to to ride through what I think of as the gauntlet. There were some apartments between our two homes and often a group of boys that were a few years older than me would be hanging out around on the street. And their reaction when they saw me coming on my bike was always predictable. They would look up, point, start to get up as if they were interested in in coming to see me. (laughs) And it reminds me of the time that Carl Schroeder and I were biking down the canal. Uh, we came around a corner just to see a group of Dobermans lounging around, and when they saw us, their ears perked up. They stood up pretty lazily, and they all started walking as a group over to the canal where we would soon be. You know, were we going to continue in that direction? No. We turned immediately around and bike the way we had come. Well, when I saw those boys, I didn't want to just turn around and go back home, so I would start pedaling faster, knowing that it would be me on my bike on the far side versus them on their feet on the other side. And I would not have, as I think back on that time where I, I was confident they had you know, malintent, I would not have wanted to have been stopped and forced to get off my bike and face them. So I, you know, that's the closest I could come in my mind to Paul being forcibly pulled from the temple by a group of people that don't just want to, you know, have fun and abuse him, they want to actually kill him. They began to beat him, and the Roman garrison assigned to Jerusalem had intervened, and they had brought him in chains and put him in the barracks, and now he stood Before the leader and looking out at this group that had been beating him, pulling him, wanting to kill him, had compassion and he said, please let me speak to them about Christ. And I think we learn from that that we too should look for every opportunity to stand for Jesus and confess his name even before the most hostile of audiences. We also learn that often this type of group will respond to us in the way we find in chapter 22. They listen for a little bit. Then they raise their voices and said, away with this fellow, not just to jail, but away from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live, and as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. I wonder if Paul, you know, sometimes when I think about I wonder if Paul had a memory flashback to Stephen. Ever wondered about that? Very similar circumstance where they dragged Stephen up and and were claiming blasphemy and Paul holding the cloaks. I wonder if Paul put himself there and had empathy in that situation of knowing how blinded he was and how these people needed the Lord. Well, things didn't go so well, and thankfully Paul was protected by the temple guards. He was taken back to the barracks, and his next audience was a Sanhedrin. We find that described in chapter 23, the Roman commander trying to understand what had so stirred up the people of Jerusalem that they would want to kill this man. And so beginning in chapter 23, 1, we read, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. We want to be able to say the same thing amongst believers and unbelievers alike. Namely, that we have lived our lives and that we have run the race in good conscience. It may be that our enemies accuse us of all kinds of false things, like Paul was accused. But what it matters is that our conscience is clean before the Lord. And the response of the council might surprise you. The chief priest instructed those standing by to strike Paul on the mouth. You ever had that happen? Maybe not the striking on the face part, but rather an angry, perhaps even violently aggressive response that came out of the blue to something that you said. Brothers, I have lived my life with a good conscience. Whack! Hey, what was that for? Right? That's what our response would be. That's what Paul's response was. Unlike Jesus, who didn't respond to the insults of his accusers, Paul lashes back out, according to verse 3, and he says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? We can understand Paul's response. But then he's corrected with the words, Do you revile God's high priest? And his response, then in verse 5, another great example for us, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And we want What a hard lesson for us to remember that we need to respect those who are rulers in our society, even if they are against the Lord and against his people. We also want to be quick like Paul to confess Confessing our sin doesn't excuse the, the people who sin against us, but it does acknowledge our own poor responses in the situation. Because why? We must always represent Jesus in everything that we do. Always be slow to speak, even in these types of charged situations. Quick to confess. And in this particular situation, the better reproach is taken by Paul in verse 6, where we read, when Paul perceived That some were Pharisees and some were Sadducees. He cried out to the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee, and it's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. That all was very true. It's also very wise on his part. There is a place for wisdom when it comes to dealing with those who are opposed. And here Paul is able to bring up some of these internal, at least one inconsistency amongst the Sanhedrin as a way of diffusing the tension, at least the tension towards himself. Now from Jerusalem, he was transported to Caesarea. In the face of the plots on his life, you may know this from having read this material, he's taken secretly at night with a guard of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. Was it really that bad? 500 people as a guard? Yes, it was. At Caesarea, Paul's next important opportunity came to speak to Governor Felix, a man who wanted to use Paul for his own advantage. Do you know who Felix was? Tonius Felix? He was born a slave. He became the first slave in the history of the Roman Empire to actually serve as a Roman governor. As a child, he and his brother Paulus became friends of Prince Claudius, who later became Emperor Claudius. And Claudius' mother, Antonia, freed her son's friends from slavery. And they they grew up together together. And when Claudius became emperor, Felix's brother Paulus persuaded Claudius to make his brother Felix second in command in Palestine. He served to the governor Cumanus, and fortunately for him, Cumanus was removed as governor, and Felix, through some backhanded deals in Palestine and some bribery, became the new governor. So the thing you need to understand about this man, I, I don't know. Sometimes when we read, you know, the just factual narrative and historical events in the, in the Bible and Book of Acts, we we just think of him as kind of a two-dimensional character, right? That comes on the scene and goes off. But he was a nasty, violent man whose reign was marked by chaos. Josephus says that he repeatedly crucified the leaders of various uprisings. Tacitus. Re- who is a Roman historian, describes him as a master of cruelty and lust, who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave, says Tacitus. So along with Felix was Drusilla, his third wife. And it's important to know that background to understand Acts 24, 24 and 25, where it says, after some days Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. What I wanted you to understand is the kind of man, just so briefly, that Felix was, and how when Paul speaks about righteousness, and self control and future judgment, he is speaking directly to the heart and life of Felix. And he's speaking boldly. And it's a lesson for us that we not only should have compassion on the lost, as we saw Paul have with the crowd, with the Sanhedrin, and so on, even those who are opposed to God, but we should also understand our audience and not be afraid to talk about those things that they will find offensive but the things that they need to hear. Author R. Kent Hughes tells the story about how the English reformer Hugh Latimer often preached before King Henry VIII. And on one occasion, Latimer offended the king with what he said because he, like Paul before Felix, spoke directly to the king. If you know anything about King Henry VIII, you know he was a pretty vile ruler as well. And so on this occasion, he offends the king, and because he preached about topics that dealt with Henry VIII's personal life, the king commanded him to preach the following weekend and to make an apology during the sermon. So the next week, the king comes, Latimer begins his sermon, and he starts, it's clever, he starts by preaching as if he's preaching to himself. So he says, Hugh Latimer... Self, do you know before whom you are this day? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away your life if you offend. Therefore, take heed that you speak not a word that may displease. And paused. They said, "But consider well, Hugh." Do you not know from whence you come, upon whose message you have been sent, by the great and mighty God, who is all present, and who looks over all your ways and is able to cast your soul to hell? Therefore, take care that you deliver the message faithfully. And then he gave the same sermon he had preached the week before, (laughs) It's a funny story, but I think in those words is, is the important lesson, right, that even if we find ourselves struggling with a fear of man, people that could even take away our lives have authority over what our earthly life looks like. We also are in the presence of the Almighty God, who not only looks over all our ways, but is able to cast our soul into hell, and you can see the difference, Right? we're accountable first to God. So Paul's not only bold, he's honest, he's courageous, he spoke the gospel to these two vile people. How did Felix respond with fear? According to verse 25 of that chapter, and that's going to be the case too. There will be our words will appear as the aroma of death and people will want to get us away from them as as far as possible, but you cannot help But when the light is shown upon you to want to scurry back, right, into that darkness, unless God is drawing you. A few will respond in faith, but the rest will want to retreat into darkness. And that's what he does. He sends Paul away for how long? Two years. Two years. Paul just sits there in prison. And the next person that he speaks to is Festus. Festus is a very different man than Felix. Whereas Felix could care less what people thought of him. Festus was a man pleaser. As soon as he became governor, within three four days according to chapter 25, he went down to Jerusalem, met with the leaders, wanted to, to already be on good terms. They wanted him to bring Paul down to Jerusalem. But Festus decided to have the leadership come back up to Caesarea before him to plead their case. And Paul's response before Festus helps us realize there are some situations where it's obvious that a person's not interested in hearing us share our faith. You know, again, Paul is reading all of these situations. There are times when he speaks directly into a life like Felix and he addresses sin. But in this particular case, it was very quick, short response. Paul simply pleads his civil case, says, I'm a Roman. In Matthew 7, 6, Jesus says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. Whatever it was, I don't know if Paul met with Festus ahead of time before what we have here recorded in chapter 25 of Acts. But it was obvious to him that Festus was not interested, so he doesn't even give any part of his testimony, at least as far as Luke records But what we do have is that Paul simply reminded Festus that he was a Roman. It was a wise move on Paul's part because it disrupted the planning to ambush him and kill him. And sometimes you will be in similar situations. You'll have to be wise and avail yourselves of these civil remedies sometimes. Even while you pray for the merciful protection of God. Paul's next encounter in chapter 26 there is with King Agrippa II and his wife, Bernice. Agrippa II was the latest of the Herod dynasty and the last of the Herods. If you know your Herods in the Gospel accounts, you may remember Herod the Great, who was the king at the time of Jesus' birth. That was Agrippa II's great-grandfather. Agrippa II's great uncle was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. They were a great family. And his father, Agrippa I, who executed the apostle James and imprisoned Peter, is the one in Acts earlier that was described as dying from intestinal worms as a punishment for having the people worship him as a god. So you remember all those Herods? Here's the latest one, Agrippa II. Well, with him was Bernice, his sister, you're thinking, wait a second, I thought this was Agrippa II and his wife. Well, yes, his sister, his wife. But she was living with him. She was not formal. She was acting as his wife. Her reputation for immorality was so bad. She had already been married to her uncle, left him, lived with Agrippa II. She became a mistress of Emperor Trajan uh, several years later, and her reputation for immorality was so bad that the Roman people cried out and Trajan had to send her away because they said, she's too corrupt. That was the Romans saying that. So in chapter 25, verse 23, we read, On the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and prominent men of the city. And at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And that term pomp comes from the Greek word phantasia, from which we get our English word, fantasy. And what what you should be thinking of is this movie-like scene of Agrippa and Bernice coming in with trumpets and banners and a whole parade with music and courtiers and and, and an entire crew designed to impress and and instill awe. Not unlike his predecessors who had been with Jesus and John the Baptist Though Agrippa II was fascinated by religious celebrities. He wanted to hear Paul. And here's what we read there in chapter 26, verse 2. Paul said, I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. So I beg you to listen to me patiently. This is a different approach, right, than Felix or Festus. Agrippa II was familiar with Judaism. Paul shares his testimony. When we have someone before us who has some familiarity with Christianity, even some level of curiosity, this can be an opportunity to give a more expanded testimony. And in the midst of this, however, Festus, to whom Paul wasn't even speaking, shouts in verse 24, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Remember Festus, the man-pleaser? He was first and foremost a politician. He didn't believe in the resurrection of a dead man, nor would he allow that kind of belief to interfere with the views and values of his day and cause a stir. And it led him to conclude only one thing. Paul was crazy. And interestingly, Paul sidesteps Festus' accusation. and gets back to Agrippa II, and he says... The king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this hasn't been done in a corner, King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. So Paul tell, shows us, you know, we've been looking at these various approaches and responses to the different types of audiences that God gave him these other opportunities. Shows us how we discern the spirit working in someone if we do that we continue to press in the conversation if you find that someone is listening to your words even if you face challenges from someone else don't let that distract you from sharing the gospel with the one who's listening it doesn't matter that festus someone like him thinks that you're crazy that can't dissuade you and so as paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 if we are beside ourselves it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who might who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so Paul's saying, look, if it seems like we're being crazy, if it seems like we're out of our mind, beside ourselves, like Festus said, it's for God. And the love of Christ compels us. It doesn't matter that people think that you're foolish in the words that you speak. Agrippa's response in verse 28 Paul, you think in a short time you'll persuade me to be a Christian? I think this answer is more sarcastic than genuine. That's as far as the conversation got. Agrippa and Bernice leave with their pomp, deciding to send Paul on to Rome. And eventually he did arrive at Rome, and he was able, according to chapter 28, to speak to the Jewish leaders there. But here's the thing. What an excitement for Paul to realize how God had used the last several years to get him to this point. Where the Lord through him would not only draw some of the Jewish leaders to himself, that's what you learn in the first half of chapter 28, those in Rome, but that he would also use Paul To share the gospel to the imperial guard and even to members of the royal family. Finally, in our morning's passage, returning there, we learned that he lived there two whole years, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The mission of Acts was fulfilled. The gospel had gone out to the ends of the earth. Churches had been established in all the provinces, and even some of the Roman government believed. Within a century, Roman historians would be complaining that Christianity had taken root in the empire such that so many of the pit temples were no longer being visited and the name of Jesus was being spoken everywhere. Now, besides how Paul responded in these various situations, what can we learn from his example in these last chapters and really throughout Acts? Paul's whole life was one extraordinary risk after another. He never knew in what form his afflictions would come or by whom they would come. Every day he's risking his life. We've seen that throughout the book. The rivers weren't safe. The the boats weren't safe, shipwrecked at Malta, Paul's own people, the Jews, persecuted, and the Gentiles weren't safe. The cities weren't safe. <clears throat> the wilderness wasn't safe. Nothing. Even those who professed to be Christians weren't always safe. Some were false. Safety and security didn't exist for the Apostle Paul. And friends, they don't necessarily exist for you. Paul had two choices run or risk and so he would say in Acts 20 verse 24, I I don't account my life of any value nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God Paul never knew what the day would hold but the cause of God called him and so he risked his life every day and in Our temptation is to go, well, that was Paul. That's a special situation. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. You can only have one of those. But let me ask this what is risk? For the sake of simplicity, I'm going to just say and define risk as an action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. If you you take a risk, you can lose money, you can lose face. Lose your life. And what's worse, if you take a risk, you may endanger other people and not just yourself. You may lose their money. You may place them in danger. For Paul, the risk was his life. Should we do the same? Is it wise to expose ourselves to loss or even possibly to endanger others? Let me just say a few things on that as we close out this morning. Risk is typically caused by ignorance. In other words, if you knew how the future was going to unfold, you wouldn't be speaking of risk. Which means, of course, that God can take no risks, right? Because he knows the outcome of all of his choices before they happen. And since he knows those outcomes, he plans accordingly... Not like a computer, but he plans with purpose, right? God's omniscience rules out all possibilities of him being spoken of as taking a risk. But we're not God. We don't have omniscience. We are ignorant of the future. We don't even know what will happen tomorrow. God doesn't tell us what he intends to do today, tomorrow, or five years from now. But he wants us to live and act with that uncertainty in front of us he says to us, for example, in James 4, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, Well, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do that and this. You don't know what will happen today, even today. You're not God, and you don't know about tomorrow. And so risk is built into the very fabric of your finite life. You can't avoid risk even if you want to, because all of your plans can be shattered by a thousand unknowns, whether you stay at home under the covers or you carry on your life. And so what I want to communicate to you is that safety And security are falsehoods. They don't exist. But the tragedy is that in the deceptive, let's say, enchantment of security, we become paralyzed to take risks for the cause of God because we think that that risk might jeopardize a security that in fact doesn't exist. In 2 Samuel 10, we read these words Be of good cheer. Good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. I like, these are the words of King Joab. He said these words before a battle. He had made a strategic decision to fight, but he didn't know how it would turn out. He had no special revelation from God. There were times when the kings were told, I'm going to, you know, you're going to go up and you're going to march and you're not even going to have to fight. Am I saying that we just do whatever seems right in the moment? No, Joab had to make a decision on the basis of wisdom and God's faithfulness. He had to evaluate what had gotten him to this point and what was the wisest course of action moving forward. But for Joab, all of that led to taking the risk of battle or running and hiding. And he made his decision and handed the results over to God the Lord will do what seems right to him. Think about Queen Esther. Mordecai says, do not think yourself to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Men, women, don't think that out isolated as a family out in the country in a nice home that you will escape any more than anyone else. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for this time, such a time as this. There will likely be several such a time as this moments in your life. And when the time comes and your faith is tested the only security that you have, friends, is not that I live in this house, not that I've lived a quiet life, I've flown under the radar and all of these things. When the time comes and your faith is tested, the only security that you have is that God cares for you, that he walks alongside of you, that he has your eternal future already guaranteed. And knowing who Christ is and that your salvation is what is secure, that your treasure is safe in heaven, that will give you the boldness to stand in the midst of trial. And I guess ultimately the question is, how big is your God? You may quickly say, my God is big. After all, I'm a reformed thinker, right? My God's sovereign. He's as big as they get. But as you examine your life and you begin to realize how big the people in your life have become, how big man is, by extension, you discover how little God has shrunk. And the truth is that the degree to which you need something from man to keep your security and your perceived safety is the degree to which you are in bondage and control by others. Whatever you think you need, you come to fear the lack of or the loss of it. If you need love, for example, you'll soon be controlled by the one who dispenses love. If you need the security of a safe, comfortable family, you will not rock the boat and you'll not do things that stretch your family beyond certain parameters. And all forms of fear of man share at least one common feature and that is people are big. They're idolatrously big. They control us. And since there's little room left to worship both God and big people, God becomes little. But the solution is to fear God. Make him big and people correspondingly small. And what we learn from Paul, there are no guarantees There are no guarantees, there are no safe harbors, there are no secure, you know, my life, I'm going to think about sailing into the sunset of retirement at 60 and going to have my family surrounded all around me and I just have my entire future planned out. Therefore, I don't want to risk those things, I don't want to risk harming that vision But Paul teaches us there are no guarantees. It could be like a Paul that that your life is taken captive in a moment. You are his instrument. God wants to use you. It's not even a promise that every effort that you make on behalf of the kingdom will succeed. That's a hard one too. You think about risking things and being bold and courageous, especially in the, in the sharing of the gospel and living our life as a testimony. And in the midst of our society, we think, well, if I'll just take that risk, God will bless that. Well, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't bless every single one of those things. They don't always seem successful. What about John the Baptist? He risked calling a spade a spade when Herod divorced his wife to take his brother's wife, Herodias. He was beheaded as a result. Paul, beaten, thrown in jail in Jerusalem, shipped off to Rome. It's believed to have been executed there after that two-year period that we have described. How many graves are there in Africa, South America, India, Asia, because thousands of young missionaries freed from the enchantment of security and safety risked their lives For the cause of God. And what about you? Where are the falsehoods of security and safety causing you to become complacent? Where have you been paralyzed from taking risks for the cause of God? It could be something as simple as some of you who are on college campuses being paralyzed from taking any risk for speaking too loudly out for the name of Christ amongst the students. Will you men instead say with Paul, I'll do it, I'm even willing, as Paul says back in chapter 20, to die for the name of Christ? Will you women say with Esther, I'll do it, and what she said, and if I perish, I perish? Is He prompting you to speak to family members about Christ? Neighbors, bosses, employees? Is the Spirit convicting you about the way you've been handling the temptations of your life? Is He convicting you about complacency? Is He telling you to lose one thing or another? Is He calling you dads or your moms back home to your children? Whatever it may be, it is right to risk for the cause of God. You are not responsible for the consequences of people's reactions. Some of them will come out of the blue as they did with the Sanhedrin. What you are responsible to do is to obey and to have confidence that God's purpose will be accomplished for His glory. He does not guarantee your safety. What He guarantees is His blessing. Is that good enough? that good enough let's pray Lord God you are the mighty God who loves us who calls us to step away from the sense of security and safety and however we've defined it in our personal lives whether that definition is wrapped up in in a relationship marriage in our family As a parent, a child, maybe it's grown children, maybe it's children still in the home, maybe it's with our employment situation, maybe it's simply just the risk of being seen to be crazy, as Festus accused Paul. But Father, what we've seen this morning is this heart that motivated Paul in all these circumstances to have compassion on those who were hostile to him. To, to be wise in various situations, to share the gospel creatively, and, and especially as he discerned people that had knowledge or interest to, to speak more, sometimes to speak less. And then the confidence that we have as we look at the whole picture of the, of the book of Acts and, and all that Paul went through, to see him at the end of, of his life welcoming people, guests to him, continuing to proclaim the gospel, living at his own expense, there at the end of the earth, Father, you are in control. Yeah, we just need to have the confidence that that's true of our life too. Help us to trust you and to desire your blessing. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus, amen.